Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, where we will begin reading from verse 37 in just a minute. As you do, think with me for a moment. Do you know that kids game telephone? You know, the one where you like line all the kids up in a long line, and then the first person whispers something into somebody's ear, right? Like, the Braves will beat the Mets. Um, And then they pass it on, and they pass it on, and then you get to the last person, and then they announce what the person said. Barbershop Quartet. In our passage today, we are going to look at some of the essential marks of the church. But before we go back to the beginning and hear the original message, consider with me where we stand today after that message has been passed down and passed down through different cultures. Today, in our culture, what would be the prevailing idea of what a church is? If you were to just pull your friends, your co-workers, and ask them, what is a church, what would they say defines the church? Would they look at it narrowly as an event that we attend? Just the Sunday morning gathering? I think I've heard more than once someone say about their church, I love that I can just get in and get out and not ever have to talk to anybody. Hmm. Is church just the gathering? Or these are post-COVID times, do we even need to actually physically attend church anymore? Certainly some folks would go still further and see church as an altogether optional thing for Christians. Can't I just follow Jesus with my own family? Must I gather together with others in order to follow Jesus? What is church? At least culturally, our idea of church feels like that game of telephone. Through the church, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And then it gets passed on, passed on, passed on through our culture and everything else. And it comes out 90 minutes on Sunday. You don't even have to talk to anybody. Better yet, you can just watch it on your phone at home. But to bring the question home to us here this morning at New Branch, what if an investigative journalist like Luke, the author of Acts, were embedded in our local congregation here, seeking to write an account of what's going on in the life of New Branch? Would they see something resembling the biblical vision? Does our corporate witness as a church family show off the effect that the Holy Spirit makes in our lives, or are our lives indistinguishable from everyone else around us, save for just a little bit of church going? We'll return there. By way of quick review, the book of Acts opens with Jesus risen from the dead, giving the disciples the mission, and then promising to send the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fills them such that a crowd gathers, and then scared little Peter stands up and boldly preaches the gospel, this Jesus whom you crucified was both Lord and Christ. And if it helps you this morning, as we read, the structure of our passage looks something like this. In verse 42, we see the essential activities of a spirit-indwelled people. Then we see the effect on all in verse 43. 
Then we see expanding on the essentials, and then finally we see the effect on outsiders. But going back to verse 37 to get the context before we focus in on verse 42 through 47, let's read. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what we need to hear this morning. Give us ears to hear what your word has to say. Let us receive that with open hearts. God, I pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would prune us where we need to be pruned. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us where we should be encouraged. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this passage is a popular passage. I wonder if it's not one of the top three or top five passages that's been preached in just the history of our own church. However, we usually come to this passage in isolation, starting in verse 42. But part of the beauty of just preaching sequentially through books of the Bible is that we can follow the plot in its context. What happens in our passage today is the work of the Holy Spirit. He was poured out on the 120, and then they served as witnesses to the gospel, and then God brings 3,000 souls to faith in Jesus. No doubt some of them were the same people yelling, crucify him, crucify him, just weeks earlier. And then placing their faith in Jesus, those 3,000 souls are indwelled with the Spirit. So the main character of Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit. And even while he's not named in our passage this morning, he remains the one operative behind all that we see in verses 42 to 47. People can get hung up on the tongues and the miracle of Pentecost. And yes, let's marvel at that. But I would submit to you that the grand culmination of Pentecost is in our passage today. It's the resulting spirit-indwelled community, a new creation people reconciled to the Father by the work of the Son and now indwelled with the Spirit to live out life together. With that in mind, let's look at verse 42. The controlling verb in verse 42 
is translated devoted. It's the same root word elsewhere translated continue steadfastly, as in continue steadfastly in prayer. One Greek dictionary would define it as to persist obstinately in. And so the word carries that connotation of persistence, perseverance, discipline, which is to say translating it as devoted is a good translation provided we stop to reflect on what we mean by the word devoted. If we say someone is a devoted father or a devoted mother, we mean that they steadfastly persist in that role as a loving parent. If we say someone is devoted to their craft, we mean they sacrificially put in the work to acquire that skill or ability. So for example, I'm a guitar owner. I am not a devoted guitar player. (laughs) For I could never put in the discipline practice, the persistence that would evidence devotion to the guitar. So, Holding those two things together, the Holy Spirit and devotion, what were they devoted to? First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They had a spirit-wrought devotion to God's word. As the Holy Spirit indwells the new believers, he forms in them a ravenous devotion to God's word. Their being indwelled, with the Spirit of God, did not negate their need for teaching. Rather, it fueled their desire for more and more teaching. As one author said, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. The new community made it their regular practice to hear the teaching of the apostles. If you look down in the expanded part of our passage in verse 46, you see day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. In chapter 3, we would see that that this time at the temple included times of teaching. In fact, it's their constant teaching that will get Peter and John in trouble in chapter 4 and that the authorities will try to stop. By chapter 5, 42, we see that the times in their homes also included times of teaching. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So their practice was to gather together at the temple and then also meet in homes for more teaching. Uh, Of course, we don't have apostles today. What we have is better. We have the apostles' teaching recorded for us in the Spirit-inspired words of the New Testament. We have far more access. We still have teachers, yes, but the task of faithful teachers is to study deeply the Word of God and then to expose to make sure that we communicate the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. And that only makes sense, right? In our natural, unbelieving rebellion, Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth about God. 
So it would only make sense that when we turn to him in faith and repentance, ending our rebellion, that we would want to know all that we can of our God. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. I can say that the work of the Spirit in this way was evident in my life when I first came to faith in Jesus. As my youth pastor, my then youth pastor would tell the story, uh, I came to him Wednesday morning or Wednesday night after the summer camp where, uh, where I came to faith, and I said, what should I read? He says, uh, read the book of John, okay? So I come to him on Sunday, and I say, what should I read? And he said, I told you, read John. And I was like, I did. Uh, what should I read next? And he says, uh, read Acts. And I was like, is that the one that comes after John? And he's like, yes. And I was like, I'm already almost done with that one too. And he goes, just keep going, they're all good, it'll, it'll be fine. Um, but look, church, that's not me. That desire is spirit rot. That's the product of a heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. That's evidence of the new desires of being born again as a new creation in Christ. No doubt Many of us believers would give testimony like that, right? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? How is your devotion to God's word today? Do you have a persistent desire for his word? Is it a steadfast devotion, thereby allowing you to make time for his word, even while there's so many other things vying for your time. If your love for the word has waned, oh, may the spirit of God stir in you a fresh love for his word as you intentionally devote yourself to it. But not just individually. Our passage today must be corporately applied. We as a body must be together devoted to his word. So individual study, yes, but also the communal study of the scriptures with others. In communal study, love for the word is infectious as we watch other brothers and sisters grow in it together through base groups, through women's studies, through men's studies, through other times of just getting together around the scriptures. Individual, communal, and of course, in our gatherings here as we come together to submit to the word. But still more than that, we must be a people so steeped in the Bible, that the Bible comes out of us in our daily conversations together, in our encouragement, in our counsel, in our warnings, in all of life. This is the beautiful vision from Ephesians 4, where the whole body, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christian, we need you to be saturated in the word, not solely for your own benefit, but so that you can speak the word to us when we need to hear it. We need you to be saturated in the word so that you can point us to the Bible when we're not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When I'm going through something, I need more than your well wishes. 
Give me the word. Let us together be a people of the book, and may the Spirit of God do that work in us more and more. Second, let's look again to verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I'll be honest, I've always looked at this as a list of four things. You see teaching, you see fellowship, you see breaking of bread, and you see prayer. Easy. However, if we can nerd out on grammar for just a moment, shout out to all the teachers in the room, I think the grammar of this passage suggests that they devoted themselves to two things, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and that then there's an appositive phrase to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which serves to further explain fellowship, which would explain why this isn't written out here in just a simple list format, but it has the other articles there. So, uh, moving on from grammar to talk about semantics, let's talk about words. We see here a spirit-wrought devotion to koinonia. That's the Greek word, koinonia. Translating from one language to another can be tricky because there's not always like a direct equivalent and because words over time come to have associations, right? So uh, if I say the word fellowship, many of us immediately start thinking about potlucks, okay? If I say fellowship, we start thinking about something like a mostly social function. If we're going to have a fellowship night at base group, that means that there's probably going to be food and we're just kind of hanging out. Which is to say that the word fellowship can often evoke the idea of something that we do. However, the word koinonia is more loaded than that. It's a participation in. It's a sharing of. It's a close association. So for example, it's the same word used in Luke 5 to talk about James and John and Simon being partners together, being partners together in a fishing business. It's a close association. It's a constant state. And so the term fellowship is a good translation, again, good, as long as we pause to reflect what's meant by the term. Because they have been united to Christ by faith, the believers are now united to each other in a common life. Even on the surface, we see that this is more than just the Lord's Day. This is an interwoven rhythm of time together. And we see this, we see this partnership, this fellowship, expressed in a number of ways in our passage. We see the breaking of the bread, we see the prayers, and we see the radical, costly generosity. First, the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is referred to in 42, but again down in 46. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. So there are three main interpretations of what could be meant by the breaking of bread. And I'm just going to be honest with you. This one gave me fit, so let's just lay it all out, and you can all look together at the evidence and decide. First, it could refer to ordinary meals. The phrase breaking bread is, in that culture, a general term for eating a meal. 
It's a reference to the tradition of beginning the meal by breaking the bread. So it's not entirely clear to me that this would be referencing like the Lord's Supper. Rather, taking this as a reference to ordinary meals seems to be consistent with the way Luke uses the phrase twice in Acts 20 and then once more in Acts 27. Second, it could refer to the Lord's Supper. Others would say that the way it's used here in verse 42 is a more specific reference to the Lord's Supper. Taken this way, they would say that the context of it being coupled together with prayers and having an article in front of it, the breaking of bread, would mean that it's referring to something more specific. Likewise, those taking this view would say that Luke's gospel concludes with very explicit connections between the breaking of bread and with remembering Jesus. So Luke's gospel has the institution of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, and then in that Emmaus account in Luke 24, the people don't recognize Jesus until he is made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Third, maybe it's both. The third way, maybe it's just some combination of the two. Certainly it seems that these meals were ongoing and not just part of the Lord's Day gathering, but also certainly it seems that the breaking of bread would necessarily provoke in them some remembrance of Jesus' last day. Certainly their gathering in some ways is ordinary praise to him causing them to receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So, all of that interpretive work out before us, let's not miss the opportunity to just glory at the beauty of this picture, okay? Read through the Gospel of Luke sometime. I encourage you to do this. Highlight every time something good is happening around a meal. Read in Luke 7.34 that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, Meals, even still today, convey acceptance. They convey, we want to know you. Come into the circle. This seems to be innately human in a way that transcends all cultures. Meals mean that meals seem to just mean that all around the world. So when I got my first invite to, to lunch with the coworkers, that's when it started to feel like I was moving from hired hand to someone kind of on the inside. That first invite to eat with Leah's family meant something. That invite, come to our home, come and eat with us, it just means something. Their shared life together in Christ found expression in their ordinary table fellowship. So, Here's some application I think we can all get behind. Easy, holiday weekend even. Some of us are doing it already, but look around this morning. Look around on a Sunday next week. Invite someone to share a meal together with you. Start small at a pace that works for you and just see how it might grow and see how you might be edified through that. Second specific expression of their fellowship that we see is a devotion to the prayers. This phrase, the prayers, probably refers both to their coming together for prayer at the temple and also their regular practice of praying together in, in homes. Even before Pentecost, we read that the 120 were devoting themselves to prayer. 
The book of Acts is shot through with references to their prayers, praying for continued boldness in the midst of persecution in Acts 4, organizing their community in Acts 6 so that the apostles could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Acts 8, we see Stephen praying to Jesus that his murderers would be forgiven as he's stoned to death. And then Acts 13, we see them already fasting and praying when the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas for the first missionary journey. A spirit-indwelled people must be a praying people. We must be a people marked by our individual times of prayer. We must be a people that pray communally, And then, of course, we must pray corporately. We must pray confessing our constant need of his grace. We must pray big prayers of adoration. We must bring our needs before him. We must ask him to bring hope and comfort even in life's darkest situations. We must seek him for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. We must beg of him, open the eyes of the Malayali people who are hearing the gospel for the first time. We must implore him to grant us wisdom and discernment. When we gather with other brothers and sisters facing difficulty, we don't have any answers. Let us be a people that approach boldly the throne of grace. May we be marked as a people that constantly come before him in humble dependence. Third specific expression of their fellowship is in radical generosity. In verse 44 through 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This same idea of holding their possessions loosely comes up again in Acts 4.32, and then we see fuller treatment in chapter 5. But now the question before us there is this. In the book of Acts, is this merely descriptive? Is it describing for us something that happened in this people? Or is this prescriptive? serving as a model for which we should emulate. I mean, this is, after all, part of a revival, right? Like, this is a special work of his spirit. There's some ways I can look at this, this text here and buy that it's descriptive, like the, the specifics of how you generously meet needs. Uh, yeah, that's this, that's, that can just be called descriptive. However, if there's any question from reading the book of Acts, then, the, then 1 John 3 makes it clear that union, in, union together in Christ requires a sacrificial, selfless responsibility to meet the needs of others in the family. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says this, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Spirit-wrought generosity for our fellow brothers and sisters is a mark of new life in Christ. 
It's a mark that we've turned from self-centered lives and have been given new hearts that look around and say, if you have a need and I can meet it, then I got you. This will get treated more, uh, more fully in the weeks ahead, but one of the things you sometimes hear when you look at this passage is, that sounds like communism, right? You look at it and they're like, that sounds like communism, or does that mean we're just all supposed to live together in a commune? That's like what the, the response. Um, let me say this. Number one, as believers submitted to his word, that's not like a biblical rejection of it. Like, if that is what it was, then faithfulness to the scriptures would require us to change our opinions about economics or private property or something like that, rather than dismiss the scriptures. Right? We come to the Bible to let the Bible sift us. We don't come sifting the Bible. But, good news, that's not what's going on here. Uh, while we do see them holding their possessions loosely, we also see that this isn't universal for all of their stuff. For one, we see, even in our passage, that they continued to own homes. We can see in verse 46 that they continued to own homes, some of them at least. Later in chapter 5, in the event with Ananias and Sapphira, Peter is clear that they were welcome to hold back some of their stuff. Like, you could, you, you could have done that. Um, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your disposal? Peter says, you're, you're welcome to do that. You weren't required to bring it all here. And even the First John passage, right, it implies that some of you might have the world's goods. You might own things, okay? So this, pa this passage in the New Testament and all its teaching about being radically generous is not to be just easily dismissed as, oh, that's just something that they did, okay? Rather, once we kill that objection or kill that exaggerated expectation of what this should look like in our minds, we can get back to glorying in the beauty of a community that would so love one another that, again, if a need arises, they just say, I got you. In some ways, that can seem intrusive or costly in our culture, laser-focused on personal responsibility and self-autonomy. But the Christian community was always called to be a counterculture, always called to be set apart, always called to be a little foretaste of the future reconciliation of all things. The indwelling of the Spirit created a devotion to God's Word. It created a devotion to one another. And third, there's a Spirit-wrought effect on outsiders. What happened within the Jerusalem church was having an effect on those outside the church. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Here, every soul refers not just to those in the church, but those around the church as well. All were struck with a sense of awe, a reverent fear, a clear sense that something big was going on. And this was attested to by signs and wonders being performed by the apostles. Signs and wonders will take center stage next week in the healing of a lame beggar. For now, I just want to draw our attention again to this thread of wonders and signs that has been running through the book of Acts. Recall in Peter's sermon, he quoted the book of Joel, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. 
Verse 22, Peter tells how God attested to Jesus as the Messiah through wonders and signs. Here, we see wonders and signs through the apostles. If you read on in Acts, just highlighting references to wonders and signs, you'll see that thread come back. By Acts 6, Stephen, who's not an apostle, was doing great wonders and signs. So for now, um, in the spirit of opening weekend of college football, I will punt on all what is going on with wonders and signs. Because our text references them briefly to show the effect that it has on outsiders. That's what we need to see this morning. And because Pastor Ken will cover this in the weeks to come. Dropping down to verse 47, we see further the effect that this spirit-wrought revival is having on outsiders. The Spirit of God working in the people of God is giving them favor with non-believers, and that favor is the means he's using, the Lord is using sovereignly as he saves others. This is a peculiar work of revival in the Jerusalem church. The kingdom of God will not always find favor with the outside world. We must hold together the truth that sometimes the gospel attracts and sometimes the gospel repels. Here in this passage, we see the magnetic effect of the new creation people living out the gospel in community. Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But by chapter 4, we see the opposition that the leaders face for preaching this gospel. By chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned, and chapter 8 opens with the Jerusalem church scattered by persecution as Saul ravages the church house after house. The church will not be universally liked. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But if they hate us, let them hate us for our message Let it be because of Jesus that we are despised and rejected. Let us strive to not put any further stumbling block in the way of those who don't believe. The gospel is offensive enough on its own. Let us live with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that be God's will, than for doing evil. The church will not be universally liked, but nonetheless, the church will not be universally hated. God shows off his glory through the spirit-indwelled community in order to call other lost sheep into the fold. Acts 2 community continues the Acts 1 mission. Indeed, there can be no Acts 2 church without the Acts 1 mission. And should any church lose sight of this mission, then soon afterwards our sense of fellowship will likewise wither. The people created anew by the Spirit should be marked by a Spirit-wrought devotion to God's Word. A Spirit-wrought devotion to koinonia, to fellowship. A spirit-wrought effect on outsiders. So, that being said, is the Spirit of God evident in our congregation?
by God's grace, not by our own doing? I think he is. Peer into the corporate life of our church, and you will see a spirit-wrought devotion to God's word. See us coming together on Sunday to sit under the word and then huddle back up in homes all across the area so that we can be doers of the word and not hearers only. See an encouraging scripture shared from one friend to another during the week. See men huddled together at McDonald's before work to pour over God's word. See women attending expository workshops that they might be more faithful teachers of his word. See men, women, and students come together on Wednesday to study his word deeper. Even now, go downstairs and see the word of God being persistently poured into the hearts of our littlest ones. Investigate the corporate life of our church and you'll find a spirit-wrought devotion to a generous shared life together. Church, if you, see a, if you see a meal train go out, you better hop on that fast or your chance is gone, okay? Last one I saw was filled up in under 24 hours. Some of that I looked at and was like, do you two even know each other? Sometimes you don't even ask in this church family and say, we might just fix your car up for you. Look around in a given week and I don't think you can count all the going-ons of meals, coffee, play dates, pickup truck borrowing, helping out, serving one another. Attractive? I think so. I'm biased, right? If you're here today and you're not a believer, then here's my appeal to you this morning. Come and see for yourself. I invite you to join in and observe the day-to-day life of this church. Bring your skepticisms, bring your doubts, come sit on our living room sofa, kick up your feet on our coffee table. We're not perfect. We got some quirks, we got some personalities, we got some crazy aunts and uncles in our family. Sometimes they give them a microphone. Um... (laughs) But praise God that there's room for all types of people at the foot of the cross. We've got sin that we're wrestling against. We've got habits that we want to see die so the Lord can get more glory in our life. Sometimes we've even got suffering that we're going through. But by God's grace, if he would continue to guard us from evil, we will press on together, bound together together by our union with Jesus, made to be brothers and sisters in this family. None of us all that impressive on our own, but together making up a beautiful tapestry by which God shows off his glory. On our own, just a stone, but together these stones comprise a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. He would be so kind to grant us perseverance. We will continue to seek more and more to be transformed by his spirit so that as a body we might better reflect Christ. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. And friend, we're going to keep holding out this message that there's room for you at the table too. The Spirit of God continues adopting broken sinners into God's family.
Turn from your sin and self-rule. Place your faith in Jesus, and his spirit can make you, will make you a new creation and bring you into the family. United with this local church family, but also united with the global family of God comprised of every believer all around the world that names Christ. Church, let us continue to press on together, confident that the spirit who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your grace in saving each of us. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that you don't save us to walk through the Christian life on our own. God, but that we are saved to a family. And I pray that you would stir up in us as a body more and more affection for one another. Lord, I pray that you would Again, prune us wherever we need to be pruned. Show us where we don't represent you well. But Father, encourage us where we do. God, I do pray that if there be any here that don't know you, Lord, that they would hang around and investigate, and this would be a safe place to investigate the claims of Christ. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.